Would you turn with me to the 13th chapter of the book of Judges? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. It would be interesting to know how many of you have read the book of Judges lately. It's, uh, it's not read much. But it's a great book. It's a book uh, full of heroes and heroines, uh, deeds of daring do, swashbuckling uh, courage. Uh, the theme of the book is uh, has to do with the fact that there was no king in Israel at this time. This was before David. As a matter of fact, the book is intended to be preparation for David's coming. There is a refrain that occurs four times in the book. There was no king in Israel. And twice the, the, the phrase is repeated, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no one to call them to worship. There was no one to call them together. There was no one to call them to arms when they were attacked. Uh, there was no one to remind them of God's great saving deeds in the past or the, or the glorious prospect that Israel had for the future. None of that. They were looking forward to the coming of the king. And in the interim, God raised up uh, these judges or champions of justice. Judges is not a good term, really. The, uh, the Hebrew word sophotim means, uh, we, we think of a, of a legal figure dressed in a wig and magisterial robe, robes. We think of a judge, a, a person who deals with the law. The, the word judges in Hebrew really means a champion of justice, someone who looks out for the little person, for the widow and the orphan and, and the helpless. And uh, from time to time, God would raise up these heroes and heroines to deliver Israel. Israel would sin, they'd fall into declension, they would be overwhelmed by one of the neighboring countries, and they would cry out to God for relief, and he would send a champion. He would send a man or a woman to deliver. It's always God's way. He doesn't uh, inaugurate programs. He sends people, works through men and women to accomplish his, uh, his ends. And uh, that's... That's why we want to study the story of, of Samson. Uh, Crystal Gale uh, cut an album a few years back entitled These Days, and I recall a line from one of the songs. Uh, Too many lovers, not enough love. You remember that song? That phrase, I think, very aptly describes the story of Samson. Too many lovers, not enough love. Jesus said it would be like that in our age. He said, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. We can expect people to talk about love and to have lovers, but not to understand the nature of true love. It's true today. It was true in Samson's day. And uh, the message of Samson is the ease with which we can prostitute our bodies and lose the very purpose for which God called us. The story of his drift away from his from his uh, from the great destiny that God envisioned for him. Uh, let's start with uh, verse one of chapter thirteen. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. Here's a cycle again of sin and subjugation to one of the alien nations until a deliverer is raised up. And at this point in Israel's history, it's the Philistines to whom they're subject. Now, these are really very interesting people. They've always uh, uh, been interesting to me. I've done a lot of reading about them. They, uh, they're Greeks, basically. They, they came from the Aegean Sea, from the region just to the east of, uh, of Greece. 
If any of you have read uh, uh, Irving Stone's book, The Greek Treasure, have any of you read that? It's a story of, uh, of Henry and Sophia Schleyman. Schleyman was an archaeologist who discovered the Mycenaean culture. Some of you have seen the pictures of this big gold mask of Ab- 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 Agamemnon. There, I got it, Agamemnon. Um, he, dis- he discovered the Mycenaean culture, highly cultured, very sophisticated people, uh, beautiful uh, vases and artistry. Uh, and it's from these people that the Philistines came. They migrated from the southern part of Greece, probably over to Crete, and then to the, to the maritime uh, plains, the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea and what today is, is Israel. Tried to conquer Egypt, got run out of Egypt, and went into the, uh, what's called the Shephelah, the plains in western uh, Palestine. Settled down there. It's odd, really, that Philistine has come over into English as the name of an old, uh, as a term for an uncultured person because they're anything but uncultured. Uh, very sophisticated people, beautiful women. They're, they're, they're pictured on their vases as olive-complected, dark-eyed uh, women with beautifully coiffured hair, just lovely, lovely women, uh, as Greek women are today. And uh, these were the people that had conquered uh, conquered Israel. And I I, I tell you that, not just to give you a history lesson, but so you'll see something of the nature of the struggle that Israel was involved in at this time. These were very powerful people, overwhelmingly so. They had an iron-working monopoly. They were the only people who knew how to to design and build and uh, uh, sharpen iron weapons, and they had taken all of that technology away from the Israelites so that they only uh, received... uh, uh, metal for plowshares and those sorts of things, agricultural projects, but not for war. So they, were, uh, they were helpless. The situation was hopeless. But we're told in verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Just a word about his father, whose name was Manoah, and his tribe, the Danites, and a city by the name of Zorah where this man had originally lived and his wife who was barren like Sarah and Hannah before her. Actually, we're told later in the, in, the, in the chapter that Samson, who was the son of this Manoah, grew up in a refugee camp. The Danites, as a tribe, migrated north, largely because of the presence of the Philistines, and left behind only a few people, displaced persons that the Philistines confined in a refugee camp called Mahanadan. It's mentioned in verse 24. And uh, that's, that's where this... Uh, where this man and his family lived. And we're told in verse 3 that the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean uh, thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Number one. Number two, he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of of the Philistines. So she's given a promise that she will conceive and this child will be a Nazarite and his destiny is to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now the uh, a Nazarite vow was a vow that was taken by certain devout Israelites. Uh, it was usually a short-term vow. It could be a few weeks or a few months or a year. Normally it was not uh, continued throughout a person's life but in this case uh, Samson was to be a Nazarite from his birth. Now, the three things were true of a Nazarite. Number one, they were not to have anything to do with grace 
or any of the products of the, of the grapevine. Could not drink grape juice, couldn't eat grapes, couldn't eat seeds, couldn't eat raisins, couldn't drink wine, couldn't uh, use vinegar. They couldn't have anything whatever to do with, with the grape. Now, we don't know why. It's not explained to us in number six. It simply said that they were to abstain from grapes in all forms of, of the grape. Probably, and I'm guessing here, because uh, the grape in the mind of people in that ancient culture stood for a life of ease and affluence, and they were to cut themselves off from that kind of lifestyle. Secondly, we're told not to touch anything dead. And again, we're not told why. They were not to defile themselves by coming into the presence or touching anything that was, uh, that was dead. And then third, they, they were not to cut their hair, let the hair grow long. Now, we do know in the ancient world that long hair on a man, and it's ironic because it's just turned around the other way in our culture, but in the ancient world, long hair was a sign of virility and strength and, uh, and courage. Most of the, of the warriors, uh, the cavalrymen and, and the charioteers, wore their hair long. You know, long hair sticking out from under their helmets like wide receivers. And, uh, <laughs> and I think I mentioned before that there were, there were uh, Greek cavalrymen who were called hippies. Uh, not, it's not the same term as our word hippies. It comes from the Greek word for horse. But they wore real long hair. And they, they rode on horses. So this was common. As a matter of fact, in the book of Judges, in chapter 5, in uh, Deborah's uh, uh, song, she talks about those in Israel, those warriors, who let their locks hang loose. That is, they had long hair, and uh, they let the braids down, and they, they affected this long uh, hair style when they went into war. So it was a sign of, of strength and virility in manhood. And in the story of Samson, because very obvious that his long hair was a sign of the strength that he had that came from God. It's a reminder again of what I've said over and over again. It takes God to make a man or a woman. It did in the beginning, and it still does. He can't be a man or a woman in reality without God, without his strength. And uh, for Samson, this was simply a symbol of his, uh, of his manhood that was derived from his relationship to God. Now let's... Uh, Pick up the story in verse 24, where we're told that the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. He was blessed. He had much to be happy about. And uh, then we're told that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and, and Eshtel. Probably the conditions in this refugee camp began to make him restless. And that's the way the Spirit of, of, of the Lord began to to stir him up to deliver Israel. Now the odd thing, and there's some very complex moral issues that you'll have to settle for yourself as we go through. Because the Lord seems to be directing Solomon and or Samson and empowering him to do things that we would say today are not, are not, we don't think they would be the right things to do. Nevertheless, in the Old Testament, there are no secondary causes. It's still God at work, even through men who are moving in the wrong direction to affect his will, because God is sovereign. He doesn't permit anyone's disobedience to blunt and thwart his efforts to get the job done. The man himself may miss the, the highest and the best, but he, he's not going to tie God's hands. He's not going to frustrate God. And so even though he, this man is doing some things that we would consider very violent, very inhumane, Nevertheless, God is working through him to accomplish certain ends. As a matter of fact, we'll read in a moment where God began to stir him up against the Philistines by sending him down to Timnah, where he actually got himself into a lot of trouble. Nevertheless, 
the Spirit of God was working through this man. And in this, at this point in the story, he's beginning to, to stir him up, uh, to see the injustice, uh, to see the oppressed state of his people, and to yearn for deliverance. Now in chapter 14. back up. Are we still connected? All right. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the, of the Philistines. Now, everything geographically in the Bible is down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a, a hill and uh, the, uh, this Mahanadan in which uh, Samson lived is about 14 miles to the west of Jerusalem, down the slopes in the foothills of, of the Shephelah, the slope that runs on down to the Mediterranean Sea. And, and Samson makes his way down about four miles to Timnah. Now, the reference here, obviously, is, is geographic, and that's all the author intends to signify. But nevertheless, in my mind, it... Uh, it, it, it symbolizes something more, and that is the steady drift of this man down and away from God. No signposts, no markers, no sudden moves, just a steady drift. And it's, a, it's an illustration, again, of what I've often said, that failure in the Christian life is never a blowout. It's always a slow leak. Someone does not simply decide to have an affair with... Uh, with someone else's wife or decide to do something immoral or, or dishonest or illegal. Usually it's a drift, a slow and steady drift away from a relationship with God. Now that's what you see in, in Samson's life. He went down to Timnah and he saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman, he says, in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, go get her for me as a wife. He was down there, as we would say today, hustling. He was looking for a wife. And he saw this young lady, and these Philistine uh, women were, were beautiful women. And his father and mother said, Isn't there any women among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? This was against the law, against Israelite law. It's out of bounds. She was a Gentile. She didn't know God, didn't love the God of Israel. He wasn't to marry outside his, uh, his nation. But Samson said, get her for me. She looks good. <laughs> the whole thing really, uh, you know, it, it seems to me it's based upon a physical attraction that Samson had for one after another of these, uh, of these women. Holy sensuous. Had no desire, really, for the, the highest and holiest things of, of God. He wasn't looking for someone who centered their life around God. She just looked good. Now in verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother. Perhaps they were going down to see this young lady and meet the family. And uh, he came as far as the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring toward him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a kid, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. It may well be that the Lord uh, permitted this beast to attack him, 
to, to arrest his downward progress as a warning, to alert him. God is so good to do that. And in any case, the Lord gave him the strength to literally tear this animal apart. He grabbed it by its hind legs and, and tore the animal to pieces. And he went on down and talked to the woman, and she still looked good to him. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. In, in the period of time after he had slain the, the lion, the, car, the vultures and the jackals had picked it clean, and uh, there was a natural cavity in which the bees had built a, a, a hive, honeycomb. And uh, Samson stuck his big paw in the carcass and took some honey and violated his Nazarite vow, see, because he was not to touch anything that was dead. But at this point, Solomon, uh, Samson was drifting. You can see that. He doesn't care any longer about the things of God. And uh, then when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them. And his mother violated her Nazarite vow. She had taken the same vow. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of, of the lion. So he begins to, uh, others become affected by his disobedience. Then his father went down to the woman and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. And, he came about, and it came about when, he, when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. That is, the Philistines did. They brought 30 companions to protect them from Samson. He had no friends of his own at the wedding. And so they, uh, they gave him the wedding party, but they were essentially bodyguards to protect their bodies from Samson. And Samson said to them, let me propound a riddle to you. That was a common practice in the ancient world. You can find riddles in the Bible, Psalm 48, 78, Proverbs 1. Riddles were a way of training the mind, particularly for young people. So there's nothing wrong with the riddle. The problem was that, that Samson was greedy. He saw the, the beautiful garments that these men at the wedding feast were wearing. Normally, in those days, you had one good uh, suit of clothes. It's all they could afford to buy, and it was normally very extravagant and very expensive. They put a lot of their money into their clothes, particularly these festive garments that they wore on special occasions like this. And he saw the 30 companions, and he saw the beauty of their garments, and he wanted them. He was drifting into materialism. He had grown up without a great deal of money, and he wanted uh, this, someone else's, what belonged to someone else. And uh, so he propounds a riddle to them. He says, if you find out the answer to the riddle, I'll give you 30 changes of clothes. But if you're unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said, propound your riddle that we may hear it. This is an enormous sum of money. He could not possibly have paid it back. But he didn't think he'd lose. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell him the riddle. And it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may tell us the riddle, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? And Solomon's wife, or Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me, and you don't love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I haven't even told my father and my mother. Why should I tell you? 
However, she wept before him seven days and finally wore the man down, and he told her. And the men of the city said to him, On the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with this heifer of mine, you would not have found out this riddle of mine. Now we come to one of these interesting uh, moral problems. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And he went down to Ashkelon and he killed 30 of them and took their, their spoil, that is, their, their clothing, and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned and he went off to his father's house in a, in a high huff and he gave his wife to his, his best man. Samson's wife was given to, the, to his companion who had been his friend. She had been humiliated, she had been jilted, and so the father of the bride gave her to the, to the best man to cover her shame. And Solomon or Samson went back to Mahanadan in a in a high huff. And and we say, you know, how could the spirit of the Lord come mightily upon a man to to needlessly slay thirty people in this in this manner? Well, earlier we've been told that God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. He was going to deliver His people from uh, from this nation. And Samson was the one that he chose to begin the process. And even though this man was drifting away from his ultimate purpose, God was still using him to to affect that end. We need to understand that in, in biblical thinking, the preservation of human life is not the highest good. Somehow, we, we, you know, we've been taught to believe that, that the preservation of human life is the most important thing in the world. It isn't. If it were, then the cross would never have occurred. The highest good is the preservation of righteousness and truth. And there may be times that a human life has to be offered up in order to preserve truth. And apparently this is, this is what's occurring here. But, uh, of course, what we see is, is a great deal of, uh, of suffering and pain in humanity, all for the love of a woman. Now we come in chapter come to chapter fifteen, which I call the day of the jackals. Uh, after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, that would be June, when in the spring a young man's fancy turns to what the young women have been thinking about all year. It came about that Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, "I will go in to my wife in her room," but her father would not let him enter. He said, "You can have her little sister. She's actually more beautiful than." And the, the young lady he wanted to marry. And uh, Samson went off angry again, caught 300 foxes or, or jackals. The Hebrew word is interchangeable. Took torches, turned them tail to tail, and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain. Uh, along with the vineyards and, and the groves. The, the fire spread through the olive groves and wiped out their economy. This was a common form of revenge in the ancient world. Roman law later uh, exacted very severe penalties for this sort of thing. But, but how cruel and inhumane. Caught these uh, small dogs or jackals, as they may be, or foxes, tied their tails together, put uh, pine... Uh, uh, pitched torches between their tails, they ignited them, and burned off the standing grain as well as the shocks, uh, the, the gathered grain. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? Who's the incendiary? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with, 
with fire, the fate that she had tried to avoid before. And Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. And he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Samson, Samson's philosophy was one bad turn deserves another. Uh, do unto others before they do you. And he set in motion a chain of events that resulted in, in great loss of, of life. It's always true. Someone sooner or later has to absorb injustice. Uh, that's why scripture does not say, uh, it says that we're not to take vengeance into our own hands. It's, it's God's right in his prerogative to avenge. But in this case, uh, Solomon took revenge and uh, the the, uh, the uh, consequences uh, uh, grew even more uh, became much, much much worse. Verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lahi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. There were 3,000 men of Judah who came down to the cleft of the rock and said to Samson, Don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that you have done? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. That was Samson's golden rule. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And they did. They bound him with new rope. He went out to meet the Philistines. And we're told that he broke the rope and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey in verse 15. And he took it and with it he killed a thousand men. And then uh, uh, topped his uh, triumph with a, a bit of poetry. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of an ass, I have killed them in mass, would be the... The English, uh, the best English translation. And then we're told in verse 20, and you would think that this is the end of the story, that he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And you think, oh, he got away with it. He thumbed his nose at God for 20 years and he got off scot-free. There are no consequences. Oh, that that were true. Uh, scripture says that we sow what we reap, unfortunately. There is that law of inevitable consequence. That though the mills of God's justice grind slowly, they grind exceedingly fine. I have a, a good friend who years ago uh, uh, left his wife and his children and as a result of an affair with another woman and moved in with her and eventually married her. And it just appeared through his whole life that everything went his way. And... Uh, Whenever we would talk, that would be his response. You know, there's no payoff. There's no, there's no judgment. I'm free. But uh, as we'll see, that, that's not the case. In chapter 16. Now what we have in 16 is a flashback. Verse 20 is a summary statement that wraps up Samson's uh, 20 years of rule. And in chapter 16 he goes back to a the period that just precedes his death. Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the, the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, then we'll kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts, and pulled them up along with the bars. And he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron, that's several miles uphill. 
they thought he was he might try to go over the wall. He went through the wall, took the city gates off of their uh, off of their uh, uh, off the poles, and these were large, heavy uh, gates, quite large. They were usually studded with nails and with uh, iron plate to keep them from burning them. And he cleaned and jerked these uh, massive gate gates and walked uphill to the top of the mountain and deposited them there. And we think, well, he, he got away with it again. But uh, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And her name even today is synonymous with uh, seduction, isn't it? Another of these beautiful uh, Philistine ladies. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her. They thought, now we have our chance. Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him. And we'll give you $25,000. It's about the amount in terms of their units of, of exchange. $25,000. An enormous amount of money in those days. Still is today. But to her it would be even more. Because they, they, they had to rid themselves of Samson. And you know the story. She tries to uh, discover from him the secret of his strength. Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said, well, uh, if you take seven cords of wet rawhide and you bind me, then I, my strength will leave me and I'll be as any other man. So the lords of the Philistines hid in a back room and uh, she bound him. And then she said, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And they were all waiting. They weren't going to go into the room until they saw what he would do. And he snapped these wet rawhide cords. And then secondly, uh, he says, she says, well, you, you deceived me. You lied to me. And he says, well, that, that's true. If you tie me with new ropes, then I'm powerless. And of course, they had tried that before. They should have known better. And we're told in verse 12 that he snapped the ropes like a thread. And then Delilah said, uh, up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. He says, well, if you weave my hair into a loom, then I'm powerless. And the looms in those days were uh, fastened to the wall, usually with pins that went entirely through the wall. The warp threads ran up and down like this. And apparently she had him go to sleep. And then she took his long hair and she wove it into the loom and then pounded it down with the pin and locked it in place. And then shook him and said, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke up and shook his head and ripped the entire apparatus off of the wall and went uh, walking out of the front door with it. By this time, the Philistines are getting a little discouraged. They, they leave because she has to call them back later. And then she says in verse 15, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? And she pressed him daily with her words and urged him, and his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, that is, this was the truth, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, because they, they had left, they had given up, they'd lost interest. Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought money in their hands. They paid her the 25000 And she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. I suppose she began to tickle him and 
in an attempt to wake him up. And when he woke up, he realized his strength was gone. And she said, the Philistines are on you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as any other time, as at any other time and shake myself free. And then perhaps the saddest words to be found anywhere in the Bible, he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. Isn't that ironic? It was his eyes that caused his problem all along. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. The word suggests some kind of dual, double apparatus like twin handcuffs, twin leg irons. And he was a grinder in the prison. Cecil B. DeMille's had uh, Robert Mitchum pushing a mule-powered grain press. You may remember that. He was off by about six or 700 years. They didn't even uh, uh, invent the mule-drawn press until about the 5th century B.C. What they did to Solomon is that they made him do what was then considered women's work. They gave him a mortar, mortar and a pestle, and they had him grind corn. In other words, they mocked him. They humiliated him. Humiliated him. Just ridiculed him. Now, I, I do not for a minute believe that Samson's strength lay in his long hair. That's magic. And the Bible doesn't know anything of magic. His long hair was symbolic of his strength that came from God. The cutting of his hair was simply uh, just another step, the final step in his defection. He had given up everything in terms of his relationship to God, all for the love of a woman. His hair was simply a symbol of that inclination or disinclination uh, from God throughout his life. Now, we're told almost parenthetically that while he was in prison, his hair began to grow. And at the same time, his repentance becomes manifest. Am I still on? Okay. Now, the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon. Dagon was the corn god, the chief deity of the Philistines. And to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Solomon, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain uh, many of us. So you can see that it's God's honor and his name that is now at, at stake. And so it happened when they were in high spirits, because these, uh, these pagan festivals were often drunken orgies. And uh, when, they had, when they were drunken, when they were in high spirits, when they were drunken, when they were in high spirits, they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand before the pillar, between the pillars. They, they ridiculed this, this great, blind, shambling hunk of, hulk of a man. And uh, Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. And we're told the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men, men and women on the roof looking on while Samson was was amusing. They're up on the top of the roof, looking down into the temple. Chris Riddell, who's on our staff here, in 1971, uh, was on a dig in, uh, in Israel, an archaeological dig, and he worked at a site called Tel Kassil, which turned out to be a Philistine site. It's one of the very few uh, Philistine uh, cities that they have excavated, and uh, the, the only temple that they've excavated. They found a Philistine temple. And Chris was in on that discovery. And in the course of their excavations, they, they discovered why this, this sort of thing is described here happened. 
the roof was supported by two wooden pillars. The pillars were no longer there, but they found the sockets in which they were planted. The, the whole roof was supported by two wooden pillars about six feet apart, close enough that a, that a fair-sized man could, could reach the pillars on both sides. And what Samson did is position himself between the pillars. He was probably chained so that the chains went around the pillar. And he either pushed them off of the, uh, off of the bases or pulled them in so that when they, they, uh, when they were pulled together, the ceiling buckled and the entire structure came down. And uh, some, someone has observed, the critics announced that uh, the next morning that Samson brought the house down. <laughs> Samson said in verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. And he, and he bent with all of his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were with him. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. It's simply one of those cold, sober reports that you get in, in, in the scripture without any moralizing just, just a report, that's all. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ishtaal in the tomb of Manoah's father. Thus he had judged Israel 20 years. They actually gave him a hero's uh, burial. The Philistines permitted his family to come down and take, take Samson back and, and give him a, a proper burial in his own country with his own tribe. What, uh, what do we learn from the, from the story of, of Samson? Well, Osgenis comments on what he calls the Samson syndrome, which, as he describes it, is the tendency of men and women to be corrupted in the area of their strength. And certainly that's true of Samson. Uh, probably a physically attractive, large, powerful man, and uh, yet it was that very strength that, that, that corrupted him. That's always the tendency. God gives gifts, and we tend to prostitute those gifts. We use them for ourselves. We use our minds or we use our bodies or we use uh, what physical beauty God has given to us. And we use it for ourselves, selfishly. And, and sell out, just as Samson did. He sold out for sex and single women. And it seems to me that that's particularly apropos for those of us that are men here. Women as well, but perhaps even more so for men. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. The word sanctification means to set something apart and put it to its intended purpose. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. In other words, the thing that will keep us from, from knowing and fulfilling God's ultimate purpose for us. Very often is sex. As a matter of fact, it's uh, very frequently with men, sex, I think. I find uh, that that's the last citadel to fall. That's the last area of holdout. You know, if not uh, illicit sex in, in action, then the, at least in fantasy. Instead of being a one-woman kind of man, instead of being single-minded and devoted to one wife, it's so easy, particularly in our society today, to drift into a relationship with someone else and to sell out, to lose it all and uh, to cease to be what God has called us to be. And, and though it is true that God is gracious and just and forgiving, and, and, and when he, he hears our repentance, he immediately responds and gives grace to obey. Nevertheless, for us to go on in rebellion and to flaunt our rebellion means that, that we will reap corruption. 
And Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man sows. That shall he reap. That's that law of inevitable consequence. We reap what we sow. Now, if you're thinking, I have made a mess of my sex life in the past and God holds me responsible for that now. No, no, we're not talking about that. Sin in the past is forgotten and forgiven and is put away. We're talking about someone who persists in sin today, who knows what they ought to do but will not do it, simply refuses to, to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, it's, it's that sort of person who begins to feel the full weight of, uh, of, of justice and judgment. It happens now in this, in this life. And what God does, you can see it so clearly in the story of Samson, is that he just lets us have our way. He just takes our hands off of us and lets us go. And lets us destroy ourselves. And leave behind a, 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 a trail of ruin and, and, uh, and wreckage. But at any point where we say, this is wrong, I cannot go this way anymore. And we repent and turn back, then God gives grace to rebuild our marriages and, to, and, and to, again to be fruitful and useful in God's sight. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that, that sex, uh, illicit sex, is a, uh, is a sin that is uniquely a sin against the body. It's an interesting thing. He says every other sin that we commit is outside the body, but uh, sexual sins are sins against the body. I thought a lot about that. And I think what Paul is saying is that they are uniquely sins against the purpose for which God gave us bodies. Our bodies are not given to us primarily to be instruments of self-gratification. They are given to us to be instruments through which we serve God and make manifest his character. Sex has a place in marriage, and there's nothing wrong with sexual gratification there. But the problem is that when it's taken outside of that context, it becomes uh, possessive and obsessive. And it, 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 we sell out to it so that our bodies are no longer instruments to which God can be seen, but merely instruments for self-gratification. And in that sense, sex is uniquely a sin against our bodies. Now, this is the story of, of Samson. And this can, can very well be our story as well. But uh, remember that we are in touch with a loving and forgiving and gracious God. And if you are, have been moving away from God, you don't have to work your way back into God's graces, good, good graces. All you have to do is judge the sin. Call it what God calls it. It's sin. And put it away. And thank God for forgiveness. And he'll give you the grace to make a, a, a marriage again, make a home again out of what has, uh, has become uh, uh, a broken relationship. He'll, he'll give you the desires of your heart. I, I talked last uh, week on the phone with someone. None of you know him, and so I, I don't mind sharing this. It's uh, just a friend of mine who uh, has moved out and is living with another woman. And uh, I said, you know, uh, on what basis can you do that? He said, well, I'm just doing it, that's all. And I said, do you consider yourself to be a Christian? Oh, yeah. And I said, well, you know, we really cannot call Jesus Lord and do as we please. We really cannot. If Jesus is Lord, then we have to submit. And uh, at this point, he hasn't uh, made any changes. But for him and for you and for me and for all of us, there's always that opportunity to come back and to enjoy his forgiveness 
and to tie in again to his resources and make our marriages what they ought to be. And again, make our bodies available to God for his purposes, for his destiny. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, uh, we thank you for this warning, for this reminder again that, uh, uh, that sin is, in the end, suicidal, that it is self-destructive, that you do not prescribe these things simply because you're trying to frustrate us or thwart us or make life unbearable for us, but it is your intent to make life what what we want it to be, full of joy and excitement and, and uh, the right kind of enthusiasm. And we thank you, Lord, for, for speaking the truth to us, telling it straight so that that we can get it straight in our minds. The, the world tells us that we're missing out uh, unless we, uh, we act on our own. But we know that's not so. We thank you for your grace to forgive. We thank you for your resources that are available to obey. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.